Okay, uh, so we're back. I know we have read through the entire book, mm-hmm. and hopefully you have by now too. But uh, I don't know about you, Asher, but when I'm laying in bed at night trying to sleep and, and tossing and turning and sweating through my sheets, mm-hmm. uh, it's because I can't stop thinking about gravity. <laughs> uh, you sound like Proust. I don't know. That's how, that's how it opens. Uh, good tease. Mm-hmm. But um, we are going to do a bunch of bonus episodes, of which this is one. I think we're going to call them appendices. Well, at least two. It might not be a bunch. Yeah, at least two, dot, yeah. dot, dot. Um, and this one, we've been kind of teasing this in a couple other episodes, but in this episode, Asher is going to unpack his master theory mm. that Gravity's Rainbow is an autobiography. Yes, an autobiography, I guess, of Thomas Pynchon. Right? No, of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. Ooh. <laughs> That's not an auto. Okay, so um, th- this is something I, s- I feel like we I see a bit of, and it's like we have an interview with this episode, too, with Albert Rolls, who kind of like wrote a book about the biographical dimensions of uh, Pinchon's writing. Mm-hmm. And Pinchon himself has kind of said in letters when people are like, why don't you do interviews? Why don't you pose for photographs and yeah. all this? And he's like, I well, have that quote. Oh, you have that prepped? Okay, I won't won't step on it. It's part of my theory. Don't uh, step. So here's Asher with his theory of gravity's rainbow. (laughs) All right, well, I started... The thing about my theory is that I started from a place of wanting to indulge in the paranoid side of things. Right. And wanting to be like, okay, Pynchon was a subject, not just knew about, but a subject of experiments while at Cornell. Right. And like MK Ultra style, MK Ultra style, and that yeah. a lot of the other like cryptic information about powers that be and their maneuverings were things he either stumbled upon or was told or encountered in some sort of underground, um, you know, of the the they. Right. Um, but as I thought more, as I read through the whole novel again for the second time, and as I thought more about it, I started realizing that a more attractive interpretation or th- unified theory of the novel was so- was influenced actually by by Proust and something that reading Proust like instilled in the way I read all great master works essentially which is that all these big master novels throughout history are either involuntarily or involuntary or voluntarily novels about the creation of the novel you're reading. Okay. So they're like mythic ways of through a made up story, telling the story of the story. Right. So, you know, I don't want to spoil Proust, but in many ways, Proust is a novel about the novel. It's a story. It's an origin story of the novel you are reading. Right. Um, War and peace, you know, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but Tolstoy's, uncle or grandfather or great uncle was a general in the Napoleonic Wars and you know David Copperfield by uh, Dickens is sort of ends it's the whole device is like he's telling the story of his life and it sort of ends with like a breaking of the fourth wall and being like now that you've listened to the story da 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 Stendhal's The Red and the Black is is obviously influenced by his time in the Napoleonic Wars and I think you, you can all the novels that are truly transcendent you can go through them, you can go through the author's autobiography, and you can pinpoint how the novel itself almost ends up justifying its own existence or explaining its own existence. Um, or the aboutness of the novel is secretly the aboutness of the aboutness. I don't know. Am I? Can you find a way to say that? I better? think that kind of makes I'm sense. I mean, I'm trying to think of who said this, but I remember one thing once. I think it was about novels, or maybe about films. But let's say it was about novels. Some critic was like, you know, the great novels are the ones that teach you how to read them. Yeah. You know, which I see as more of like a stylistic thing, right? I mean, to read Gravity's Rainbow or Ulysses or something like that that doesn't fit within a sort of, I don't know, to use an abused word by me, like workaday literary realism <laughs> mode, uh, that is kind of the experience of the book, right? Yeah. They, they are about the experience of reading them and that, experience itself leads to like a shift in not only how you read but i think a shift in like your own consciousness and ability to like get things for lack of a better word yeah but yeah i mean and i know that there's like kind of like even for people there's a you know certain group of people 
I always say it like it's like a sect or something like that. Yeah. Like, there are certain readers who think that the entire novel is like a dream of pirate prentices. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even that like the book that is often talked about by uh, pointsmen in that gang is Gravity's Rainbow itself. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't really make the, sense. Um, but it's like a Pavlov. Pavlov yeah, yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, I think I even say that, like offer that as an option in my guide. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, is the book Gravity's Rainbow. So, yeah, I mean, the, the extent to which like the book is an account of like its own composition and construction, yeah. that I kind of buy. It's like, I guess the thing that I struggle with with like the autobiographical thing mm-hmm. is like, I think that, again, Fellini quote where he's like, I can make a movie about a fillet of soul and it would be about me. Sure. Well, perhaps that's true of any author, any creator of anything that like they will obviously reveal consciously or unconsciously their own thoughts, feelings, prejudices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, by Mm -hmm. virtue of the fact that they are the artist making it. Yeah. But the idea, the thing that I don't buy about the kind of like Pinchon is a paranoid recluse who knew too much about like the CIA or MK Ultra or mm-hmm. the American political system or whatever yeah. that I don't buy is that a there were people I mean Ken Casey is an obvious example who were involved in MK Ultra who were openly like in the public talking about it a year after this book came out the MK Ultra project itself was totally whistleblown in the mainstream media and mm-hmm. exposed and it's like to to me it seems like needlessly obscurantist to be like I want to expose this thing but I have to do it in such a deeply coded way that the only way to uncode it is to invite this like radical paranoid reading for which there is essentially no evidence yeah. and it's a thing it's a problem in quotes with Pinchon in general is like because his biography and his whereabouts and his thoughts and opinions about things are so safeguarded everything relies on an absence of evidence yeah so the arguments become well you can't disprove this therefore it's as legible a theory as any other sure which okay to me I don't know that doesn't quite I think there yeah. are more legible theories yeah well that, this know? is why I ended up moving away from the like paranoid theory that the point of the book is to expose secret truths I think that's just a feature of it yeah but f- before I get into the specifics let me give you this quote okay which is from 1998 I forget if it's in a letter or something but he says as for spilling my life story I try to do that all the time nobody ever wants to listen for some strange reason right but again does that mean that he's like this is me. This person is this person I knew. Or is he saying that like everything I want to say or everything I think is contained within the books? Those no, are... I mean, I read it as the former. Right. But uh, let me let me get into my specific thoughts and you, and you just offer your okay. reactions. And I'll be uh, we'll, uh, we, we'll, we'll play. I want to play this voicemail here before I get into it, too, because it, okay. it asks the same question. So let's listen to this really quick and then okay. we'll get into it. Hey guys, this is Brandon. Uh, love your podcast and listening since uh, the very first one and uh, was reading along the way and it helped me kind of conceptualize a lot of the the theories um, and the stuff going on in, in, in Finchon's head. So one thing that I wanted to um, run by you guys is this is something that, you know, it actually hit me a couple weeks after I finished um, the, the book. Um, and, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things you guys mentioned a few times is, um, you know, the the similarities between Thomas Pinchon and, uh, Slothrop himself. And, you know, I'm wondering in the end, the whole, uh, you know, Slothrop disappearing out of the novel and kind of fading away um is actually a uh, a direct link with Pynchon's life and him kind of choosing to live um outside the the system and um and outside of not not only you know out of out of the, the out of sight from the people who were running the system but also viewers of the system and you know in the, in the case in this case, it would be the readers of the novel. Um, you know, so I just thought that was an interesting parallel that didn't even necessarily really hit me while I was reading it, but um, considering all the other parallels, you know, this this one struck me. So curious if, if that if you guys had had that thought at all and if 
um, if you think that one rings true. Thanks. See ya. Okay. Yeah. So my short answer, I feel like we've talked about this, and I feel like I've basically said as much about that. I totally buy. Yeah. Like I, I think that like the resonances between like William Slothrop and Pinchon's great 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 grandfather, uh, and between the sort of like Pinchon's history as early settlers who became sort of like Protestant capitalists, that stuff is all there. And I also agree, yes, that the dispersal is in a way. You know, I don't think a stand-in for an allegory or something like that, but reflects Pinchon's concern with, like, the notion of control and how to escape control, Mm -hmm. how to escape, like, the system and even the system of, like, literary celebrity. I think I talked about this with, like, Alex Ross Perry, how it's, like, you know, an author like this is kind of, like, the last generation of guys who are able to do this, Mm -hmm. you know? Able to do what? Able to still promote and have successful lives as authors without having to go do a fucking billion interviews and, like, be a public figure. I mean, we've talked... Have a Twitter account. Yeah, exactly. 4,000 followers. Yeah, so, we've like, we've talked about David Foster Wallace a bunch, and, like, you know, there's so much of like the late writing about David Foster Wallace, like that David Lipsky book and all that, that are all about how Infinite Jest created this problem for him where he became a public figure and how the rest of his career was a kind of like grappling with that. Mm-hmm. Now, Pinchon has been able to avoid that. Certain authors of that generation are. Cormac McCarthy yeah, was. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, Don DeLillo doesn't do a ton of interviews. He's pretty, yeah, he's pretty reclusive. I mean, compared to McCarthy and Pinchon, he's a fucking, he's like Truman Capote. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, yeah. still, I mean, th- th- these guys were able to do that because of like an era where they came about and like there being a sort of more robust literary culture. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Pinchon wanting to abstain from the public eye, this is why I've never bought the idea of him being a recluse in a kind of like paranoid, mentally ill, Emily Dickinson-ish way. Mm-hmm. I just think that he like values his privacy uh, probably more than most and certainly in a way that like people aren't even accustomed to now yeah you know well so i buy that was that guy's name brandon yeah let's go brandon yeah let's go brandon good good one i agree with that one all right well i'm gonna build on brandon's thought and when i got that voicemail i was like oh shit yeah because it's a perfect segue for me so so my theory of the novel is that slothrop's disappearance is a direct encoding of pinchon's quote-unquote disappearance right and i'm gonna present this as like you know just for rhetorical purposes like i strongly believe in it sure and i'm positing it as fact yes i i'll say now that i don't strongly believe in almost anything so <laughs> so i pretend don't actually feel this club, way but no. we're gonna pretend yeah we're gonna pretend we're in debate club you okay make the case okay so instead of might be or could be i'm gonna say is definitively yes okay so gravity's rainbow is a novel that encodes thomas pynchon's transcendence of a previous life into a new secluded one Pynchon, like Slothrop, is a figure of bewilderment, our bewilderment, the audience's bewilderment. He has become a celebrity in the zone, and his response to this celebrity is to disappear. Mm -hmm. Early in the novel, Slothrop is a part of army intelligence, but he quickly becomes involved with a group of eccentrics on the fringes of that society. Fleeing from any official task or duty, Slothrop begins to pursue esoteric truths about the world around him, embodied by the MacGuffin of the zero, 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 Mm -hmm. zero. I forget how many zeros I said. But the more Slothop learns, the more people he meets, the less certain his objective becomes. Eventually, the chaos around him seems to chew him up and spit him out. Slothrop dissolves into the madness of the zone, and the last we hear of him is in the solitary notes from his harmonica perceived by Private Eddie Pensiero in Thuringia, central Mm -hmm. Germany, southern Germany, I forget where. My contention is that this all mirrors Pynchon's life directly. Again, I'll say that quote. As for spilling my life story, I try to do that all the time. Nobody ever wants to listen for some strange reason. The early parts of the novel, London, represent Pynchon's time at Cornell. His friends in this part of the scheme are people like Kirkpatrick and Faith Sale, who are Roger and Jessica, in my opinion. Okay. Tented even up for Mafic, who's Farina. Perhaps he also becomes privy to the insane MKUltra experiments which are said to have been going on at Cornell at the time. The White Visitation then represents MK Ultra, with Pisces and Pointsmen being stand-ins for people like Dr. Jolly on West. If one's to carry this more paranoid reading further, we might see the CIA's use of creative writing as a tool for cultural influence, and that sort of like same use could be uh, symbolized by Pisces uh, hoping Slothrop's um, ability to 
map the rocket strikes and Slothrop's latent racism and all that stuff could be used for their own uh, means, but that's something I'm not really attached to at the time. But just to interject, that was a real thing, like the cultural Cold War where the CIA wasn't, like the CIA funded like the Paris Review. Yeah, and like the Iowa workshop exactly. apparently was created by the CIA, yada, yada, yada. Jackson Pollock, famously, though not a writer. Right, uh, modern art, Yeah, and uh, which I've never really understood, like, because it ex- it expresses it's about like the individual, uh, yeah, or a, a sort of radical individual sense of self that they believed was like not allowed. Anti-communist yeah. or something. Yeah, the CIA also paid for like bootleg versions of Doctor Zhivago to be distributed <laughs> in the Soviet Union, but the bootleg version had like all these typos and stuff like that. Doctor Zhivago. <laughs> um. Anyway, so if if London is Cornell, then Slothrop's time at Boeing is represented to me by the casino Hermann Goring. The assignments given to him to study German runes and rocket diagrams represent his time writing technical manuals for Boeing. The hedonistic social life of the casino also could represent his early forays into the social world of the counterculture. His pal Muffer Maffick disappears, Richard Farina dies, Roger and Jessica are left back in London. Meanwhile, Pynchon is about to start writing his first two novels while at Boeing, or maybe is already writing them, do you remember? I think he starts writing V, but I don't think he starts writing... Lot 49 until later. Yeah. But I don't really know. So, leaving Boeing and venturing out into the zone, Pynchon, like Slothrop, is quickly cast into the chaos. Read California. So, my contention is that the zone is California. Right. After he learns certain truths about the way the world works, he dedicates himself to exploring the more esoteric side of history through fiction, through his novels, which is definitely what V is about, sort of what Lot 49 is about, definitely mm-hmm. what Gravity's Rainbow is about. And then, you know, going on from there more or less, his whole career. Yeah. I could also think that, like, if you want to dig into that, like, Der Platz, which in the last episode we get to the idea of, like, Der Platz as kind of this, like, perpetual anarchist paradise is kind of like Pinchon's at once perfected and nightmare vision of that sort of Manhattan Beach scene where he used to hang out and whatever we know about his social life and smoking hash with, like, hippies and dopers and literary people and stuff like that. There is a kind of, like, as you say, hedonic sort of utopian enclave vibe that I get whenever sort of hints of his life at that period. Yeah, and just the vibe of like wandering around the zone and meeting all these people, it strikes me as like perhaps what being at those, that early tremblings of the counterculture might have been like, you know, this sort of blank slate um, existence where people are trying new things and enclaves are forming and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And to hammer that point home even further, the pie fight Slothrop has with uh, Major Marvy, I think I've said this before, right. but it's one of those strange details we know about his time in Manhattan Beach is that he had organized a pie fight with his like neighbors. Right. So take from that what you will. Um, in the zone, Slothrop is bandied about between different members of the counterculture. Now my here my my theories are fusing. Right. Jelly tripping, semen boating, sour bummer, all presumably represent people who Pynchon might have met freaks while he traveled through Mexico, Northern California, New York, yada, yada, yada. Slothrop, now in the zone, is pursuing even deeper truths about the world, things to do with the Rocket Cartel and IG Farben. In this section of the novel, we encounter many different conspiracies like Lyle Bland's Freemasons, the Phoebus Cartel, German sadistic expressionist films, Nazi occultism, yada, 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 yada. All of these could represent Pynchon's intense research efforts pursued to supplement his novels V, Lot 49, Gravity's Rainbow. It seems the mission of his fiction is to cast light onto various secret histories of the modern world and how they influence the dull quotidian of our consumer-based lives. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Eventually, Slothrop... Slothrop is such a fucking hard word to say. Eventually, Slothrop and Pynchon become so immersed in the chaos of secret histories and parapolitics that all that is left to them is to disappear and write their novels. Slothrop scatters. Pynchon secludes himself. Yada, yada, yada. I'll stop saying yada, yada, yeah. yada now. Like Proust, Gravity's Rainbow is a novel about how it was written. It tells the biography of Pynchon from Cornell up into the moment he sat down and wrote the first word. Uh. Screaming. <laughs> I guess <laughs> the first word is just uh. uh. Um, the final scenes of him walking around Thuringia naked, masturbating, and finding his harmonica in the mountains represent his retreat into that darkened apartment in Manhattan Beach where he spent years writing this novel. Slothrop's disappearance from military operations and the public eye represent Pynchon's disappearance from the literary world and the public eye. So I ended up sort of feeling that all these um, systems of control that 
a more paranoid reading said are like about the CIA are actually sort of about the literary world. Right. And that the three letter agencies in the novel represent this like apparatus of publicity and publishing interviews, press, yada, yada, yada. And Slother disappearing from that represents Pynchon's like principle of foregoing any yeah. of that. So, Dropping out of literary society. Yeah. Meanwhile, the counterculture and the zone are ending. The world is doomed to never be interrupted again by the spirit of revolution. American corporate hegemony has prevailed. The long 60s are over. Nixon, Reagan, Bush are on their way. The rocket is launched, and it will land in California in the movie theater where the American populace has once and for all been pacified, lured into a sleep, forced into toothless consent for the end of the world. Slothop has vanished, the counterculture has failed, the bad guys won, and all that is left is humanity's eventual self-destruction. And the only way to sort of participate in that authentically is to disappear and to write novels. So anyway, yeah, I that's mean, basically my theory. I, I, I buy that as an argument for sure. Nice. Like, I think it's great. And if I were grading your paper, I would give it an A. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Yeah, and I mean, I, I do think that, like, all those themes are there. And it's like, I guess the thing where I struggle with this, because there are the kind of, like, harder paranoid readings, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, like, that is where I struggle with, like, A, for reasons that we've already talked about, and B, because I also think that so much of Gravity's Rainbow is, like, a lesson into, like, not over-determining the meaning of things. Sure. Because it will drive you insane, and you will just try to, like, find connections to create yeah. some sort of, like, master theory. And the thing that I love about Gravity's Rainbow as a reading experience and as a book is as much as it is about this like labyrinthine construction of conspiratorial corporate power, mm -hmm. it also permits the idea of like spontaneity and resistance, yeah. right? I think the parts of my theory that felt true and exciting to me were like trying to locate stages of Pynchon's life in yeah. stages of the novel. So like when we think about the London section, the way people like move around and like duck into buildings and encounter each other reminds me of being like in a college campus. Like, right, right, right. Like when we go in and see Osby's desk and like that reminds me of like a student lounge or a library or something and like the pub where they're having the seance reminds me of like a campus bar or something like that. Right. And then the casino Herman Goring stuff being Boeing I think that's not a perfect theory, but I do think uh, Slothrop being given those manuals and being like, teach yourself how rockets work yeah. feels very much like Pynchon being like told, like, you got to learn how this stuff works to write these technical manuals. Yeah. And Th then going off into the zone in California feels sort of poignant to me. And, and then his eventually disappearing out of the zone and his eventually secluding himself away from the public eye in California. That was sort of where it all. I also want to say too about the zone stuff. Like when you say that's California, like one thing we didn't really talk about is like one of the few pieces of journalism that Pinchon has ever had published was I think from '66 in the New York Times Magazine, where Kirkpatrick Sale I think was editing at the time, and it's called "Journey into the Mind of Watts," mm -hmm. and it's about the yeah. Watts riots right. and all like racial tension in LA at the time. Yeah, and it's I think a really good piece of journalism because it like shows the way that he, as like kind of a white dork, is like thinking through American racial tension, which mm -hmm. is like to say it's a big part of Gravity's Rainbow. Maybe it doesn't make sense, but it, I mean, it, it definitely is in the plot, right? I mean, yeah. Slothrop is being explicitly weaponized as a racial weapon to eliminate a black resistance group, yes, right? Yes. And like his own sort of like racial paranoia is trying to be exploited to that end. And I think that that journey to the mind of Watts, like I don't really have an argument, but it's worth reading because at the same time the Watts riots happened a few months before, it was like the Watts acid tests. And I think in that essay, What's that? Uh, it's like when they did like the Ken Casey, Mary Pranksters did a series of happenings mm -hmm. they started in san francisco at i think the longshoreman's hall or something like that mm -hmm. great uh, place to trip <laughs> oh yeah well yeah just like any empty space but it's like uh they would take acid and like the grateful dead in their early iterations oh, yeah, would play yeah, yeah. and pen would be up there doing his yeah thing. like like when the grateful dead were still like the warlocks like yeah, a blues yeah. band yeah, and yeah. like Owsley Stanley, the LSD chemist and engineer, was, like, doing the sound, and they would do, like, experimental poetry and all this stuff. Yeah. But it was kind of like a debutante party for, like, LSD and the counterculture, mm -hmm. and they did one in L.A. that famously went quite south, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, like, people reported, like, not— Because of, like, racial tension. No, just because of, like, the vibe and those weird Watts towers. Like, yeah. a lot of the reports were, like, it wasn't a good time, and yeah. it was strange. And... I mean, they probably had to confront the—just, like, the systemic— 
prejudice yeah. and, of and also it's like I think the NorCal hippies like didn't quite understand that the culture wasn't going to take in the same way in LA yeah I mean this is like a bad example because this band sucks shit uh-huh. but it's like if you think of like LA psychedelia it's like the door <laughs> and say like that. you know which has like a doomier edge I'm, to I'm on the bell curve with the doors I'm I'm back on really I watch they have a, say they have a couple good they tracks. have a couple good songs and I, I watched, watched the Oliver Stone, Stone movie yeah. the other I night I kinda, when I was a kid I loved that movie I know and I literally Every time I would see a picture of the real Jim Morrison, I'd be like, "That's not that's Val not Kilmer." Him. Yeah, there's also what the hell? there's also a dude in one scene who's like supposed to be David Crosby, but it's never identified. Just looks exactly like Doctor Robotnik from Sonic <laughs> the Hedgehog. It's like you gotta sign this guy. Uh, but anyways, I think that like that essay is worth reading because in it, Pinchon is a- ahead of the curve on the idea that like the counterculture is like really just a bunch of escapism and that it has no political program, yeah. which like in the seventies was, was literally a thing that like, I think Eldridge Cleaver mm-hmm. did an interview with Timothy Soul on ice. and he's like, he's like, yeah, like you guys are just like doing acid and fucking well, like the black Panthers are trying to fight for liberation. Yeah. And Leary had to be like, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Man. Um, so anyways, I mean, I, I like if that is the autobiographical reading, I yeah. like that. And I think that like, again, uh, in a way where it like makes recourse to the elements of the novel. And mm-hmm. it's like, again, these are the ways in which I think authors are like embedded in their works yes. in ways that is yes. almost like unconscious. Yeah. And I mean, I've always kind of like read books like that where it's like the ultimate point of reading is like, this sounds airy fairy, but like a communion with an author or like a creator. Yeah. And like, even with films, I watch everything in like an tourist way where I'm scanning for themes and ideas and images or techniques that recur. Right. 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 So I, I do think that like, uh, gravity's rainbow is like about pinch on in that way, but it's also about like, again, the idea of the individual yeah. to use a Sheila Hetty term, like mm-hmm. how should a person be good for you? Uh, Toronto <laughs> represent. Oh, uh, is she from Toronto? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, I, I, I like that reading and like, you know, like I say, it's like the hard paranoid stuff with Pinchon that I bristle at. Like, if you've ever seen that documentary, like Journey into the Mind of P, yes, which of course. It, I'll, I'll link to and you can find it on it's YouTube. It's the best. It's cool. Maybe we should clip right here that moment where the guy's like, you know who else was on a bus to Mexico at Lee the time? Oswald. He was Pinchon. Imagine that Pinchon. <laughs> Did beside. they talk? Yeah. And also, was Bob Dylan somehow also on the bus? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like Journey to the Mind of P, when I watch it, it's like that Room 237 documentary yeah. where it's like this is a film about paranoia yeah. and like mental illness, essentially. Yeah. Uh, that being said, that movie slaps. Room 237. Yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, Rodney Asher. God bless. Um, hey. Speaking of reading Pynchon's biography, or speaking of reading Pynchon's texts in the context of his biography, we had a very cool guy um, on to discuss just that. He wrote a book that just came out very recently, or no, came out a couple years ago. <laughs> five years ago. <laughs> Damn, time flies. In the arc of Pinchon studies five years ago, I suppose. I see recent. 2019, and I'm like, recently. That was yesterday. Jesus. So yeah, the book is really great. It's short. You could read it in one sitting. It's called Thomas Pynchon, The Demon in the Text, and um, it accesses a lot of never-before-seen tidbits that we'll get into in the interviews, so... Without further ado, let's throw it over. Let's rolls it <laughs> with uh, Albert Rolls. So, Okay, so Albert, first of all, I'd like to say I really loved your book, which is called Demon in the Text, uh, for anyone who might be interested in buying it, and I would highly recommend. I thought we might start just with that title, and I, I suppose the general theme of the book, which is based around, uh, I guess, a metaphor you might call it, of Maxwell's demon, um, which is named after a physicist, James Clerk Maxwell. Could you explain what about this concept of Maxwell's demon um, inspired you and how it connects the well, Thomas Pynchon? Well, actually, the, the Maxwell's demon came up while writing it. Uh-huh. Um, I, I kind of, I got, I got a book contract um, because I wrote a like a 10,000-word encyclopedia article for world authors mm-hmm. and um and i got a contract to do a bio of pension and it never came up the way it was supposed to be primarily because i'd make guesses about what he was doing with his life mm-hmm. um like in in seattle like everybody knows he went to seattle 
and then he fin and he and he wrote V in a year and a half. And I figured he was going to work and working. And then um and then um that that memoir of his friend from Seattle came out. I can't think of her name at the moment. But um and he was hanging out and having fun in Seattle. He wasn't just writing. So I had to scrap the Seattle and, and I just started writing this. And the demon of the text, it's actually less based on Maxwell's thought experience than on the fastest machine um, mm -hmm. in Crying a Lot 49. And if you know, uh, and, and the idea of entropy as it appears in the story entropy, Pynchon tries to, to, to use, to combine the classical idea of chaos and the element theory of chaos with entropy and chaos and what's called chaos and entropy. So I'm not, I'm less interested in how the the books use get entropy right, but in how they but how you can use them to discuss Pynchon's um, uh, idea. And it it comes to me that in the fastest of stream, there's three there's three things. There's the box. There, there's the the viewer, which is Edipa in the story, mm -hmm. and then there's the portrait of Maxwell, and there's the demon inside the box and you're supposed to communicate with the demon and it seems to me that pension what we have is pension's books and we have readers and we have the pension is kind of manipulating information and his knowledge and, and his research to put together the books um and and so there's this three and um weisenberg talks about it at one point um he he calls the third term a kind of supernatural term and, and I mentioned this in in the demon in the text, but also it's kind of a cultural context if we if we look at Oedipus, what Oedipus thinks about the portrait of Maxwell. Um, so we have these three sides of um, three points, and Pynchon is the demon. The texts and the and the cultural cultural context in which they're produced is the kind of the portrait of Maxwell and we're the readers yeah. and our reading of these books and and, it, and this comes up in entropy and the and the um the story of entropy where we have the band that doesn't make any noise and each listener is making their own noise um and we're reading Pynchon's books kind of not as isolated as that but sort of in in isolation so you have a community of people that surrounds these texts um and um i, I argue that the the vision of the leading edge um the the, yeah. the pictures of people wearing i am thomas pynchon t-shirt yeah, it represents this the promotional the leading edges promotional campaign yeah. the um the the um different heads popping up out of this t-shirt that says i am thomas pynchon represents the community of pynchon they all look different they all probably read the books a little bit different but they're all kind of um united by their interest in the books yeah yeah um, I, we were sort of having a discussion about that just before we hopped on with you um where John and I are, come from a little bit of different approaches to reading Pynchon. I am a more tending towards sort of what what you're talking about. And I'm like looking at details and remembering little things about his life that I've learned from your book and just from all the other, uh, the mountain of speculation and little bi biographical, biographical details that are around about Pynchon. And for example, one small example that I think is very interesting in your book, you mentioned he has a pie fight with his neighbors in California. Um, oh, yeah. And in Gravity's Rainbow, there's the scene where Slothrop is being chased. Slothrop is in a hot air balloon. He's being chased by Major Marvy in an airplane. And they're like lobbing yeah. pies back and forth at each other. Um, and for me, I'm like, oh, OK, so the zone could be California. Slothrop's disappearing is sort of pensions vanishing into obscurity and moving to California. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm sort of doing that, that work that you're talking about. And John is more of like, I don't I don't care about that. So, <laughs> yeah. well, I think for when I read Pinchon, I find that like his treatment of, of paranoia and conspiracy is almost a caution against those sorts of like highly overdetermined 
uh, biographical readings. And it's like, I was talking to Asher about this earlier where, you know, probably my favorite short story of all time is the figure in the carpet. And I always think about that idea where it's like, uh, the effort to sort of disentangle the presence of the author in the text or what is biographical and what is fabricated will ultimately just be like a maddening experience. And I think about these like pinch on archives opening up at Huntington and all this, and I even have an assignment to go write about them. And there's part of me that doesn't want to do it because I feel like each new thing I learn will conversely be diminishing to what I like about Thomas Pinchon, if that makes sense. <laughs> Well, the funny thing about it is I didn't get into biographical, anything biographical. I was completely disinterested in it, mm -hmm. but I got a job with current biography and I was writing biographies for two years. And then um, so I, I someone contacted me to do a, a reference bio of, of Stephen King and a reference bio of um, of Zapata. Um, and, and so it was basically i got a name for playing with biographical things and that's what i could get a contract to do it's such a it feels like such a punishing assignment like write a biography of thomas pinchon it's like <laughs> i feel like you would leap at the chance but then when you sit down to do it go oh, well no. i had a lot of fun I, I mean it took longer i never actually fulfilled the original contract and the company went out of business before um i finished the book um actually i was working for the company when it went out of business we we got evicted. It was like I was a child again. The the cops came in and kicked us out of the, the building. Oh wow. Oh. Well, that's that's a good segue into my next question, which is just I'm curious about your personal experience reading or reading into Pynchon's biography. I mean, John mentioned that story, um, the face on the carpet. Finger um, in the carpet. Finger yeah. in the carpet. Yeah. And how it can be maddening to try and find some kernel of objective truth in, in obscurity. Um, I'm wondering what was your personal experience just as a person doing this research? Um, when you did you find things and get sort of enthralled and excited, or was it more maybe even of a punishing experience for you? Well, I I found some neat things. Um, like I I mean the everything I I had I, I found is basically, or, or the majority of things I found are in some library. Mm -hmm. I I went to the I went to Huntington and did the looked at the Tomas files and I went to Austin and looked at their files. Um, a friend of mine mailed me the folder from the University of Houston, um, with the Bartlemy letter in it, and um, a, a, a somebody at um at the Library of Congress um sent me a letter that they have on file and um. And, and uh, some of it was very interesting, but the Mahul thing was was the kind of the most fun What's because that? um there's there's a letter in in Austin and on the top of it it just says Mahul and there's three and then there's a letter about them being in New York City um probably over the Christmas vacation 1959 into uh, 1958 into 1959 mm -hmm. um. And and people really didn't know who Mahul was, mm -hmm. and, and somehow I found it. I found um, I found her, and I emailed this woman who I thought was her, and it was her. And she typed um, the final draft of V. Mm -hmm. she, she was working in a um, in, in a in a publisher in New York, and um, she'd gone to Cornell with Pynchon, and she dated Kirkpatrick Sale before he 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 hooked up with uh, with um faith and um and she she typed the the manuscript but you see there's a mention of of pat of a pat in in um in of a fun gould letters um where where so, somebody told pynchon that the title was going to be that smith bork thought the the novel might be called the yo-yo um thing of benny profane mm -hmm. And Pynchon heard this, and he wrote to Cork and said, "I don't want to call it that." Mm -hmm. And and he and he wrote back and said, "Oh, I hadn't finished the book when I came up. You probably talked to Pat." And and Pat and her friends actually visited Pynchon in Seattle, probably after she wasn't um, absolutely certain when when she um, when she was there, but probably after she visited, if she went to Cle she met Cork in Cleveland at a library association meeting. And she went out to Seattle and met met Pynchon and hung out with him for 
for a few days before going back to work. Mm-hmm. And it was neat talking to her because um, nobody knew of who she was really. Yes. Um, she, she's on Twitter now. Mm-hmm. I, I saw her on Twitter a couple of months <laughs> ago. Um, and, and, um, and getting the, the, the Halloween overall ready essay was a, a, a kind of neat. Yeah. Because has that been, discovered or talked about before or do you do you feel like it hadn't been talked about before Mm -hmm. and and i i scoured um i scoured um for our listeners that's an essay pynchon wrote for his son's catholic school newsletter or something like that yeah essay is probably generous it's like a little article 500 words it's online now Uh uh-huh you can get it online um the school the cathedral school and and it's not catholic they're episcopalian i believe episcopalian. um saint uh, but um but they, they put they republished it in a magazine but no one had written about it before and i spent 2 years trying to find a copy mm-hmm. and and this guy was selling a copy of of the vineland manuscript and and i knew somebody who wanted that so i hooked those two up together and he he let me read his copy of the the um of the halloween essay so so there are like people out there who are sort of there's like it sounds like there's almost an underground of pinching ephemera collectors and oh yeah and all that stuff and there's volumes i have a volume of of like the oyster bay high school articles and things like that i mean yeah people publish this stuff i find it's fun even doing this podcast because anytime we learn a new detail we increase the total knowledge of Pinchon by like a whole percentage point, you know, uh, which oh, you yeah. can't say that about many people. Well, there's um, 50 sealed letters in Austin now. Yeah. And, and, and then there's all the stuff that's coming out of Huntington and, and um, there's the Candida art letters that will eventually be available. Yeah. Um, Candida Donatio, his first agent, right? First agent. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you, do you have any sense of why those are sealed or do you think it's, do you think it's for any specific reason or just because Pynchon doesn't want any of this to come out until he's dead? Um, Pynchon got his lawyers after, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I remember the story, um, because I, I, I it, it, it happened around the time Mason Dixon came out mm-hmm. and I was working on a, actually a Shakespeare dissertation at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Mason Dixon came out, and then my friend—I was in Ireland—and a friend sent me a, a, the article from from the Times. And then by the time I got back to the States, they were sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he just sent his lawyers after him, and I guess he didn't want them to read. Just like the Ford, the the Ford, the the application for the Ford Foundation um, money in in the fifties right. um, is sealed. Um, which the story behind that is a little bit different than the one that we have. Mm-hmm. The one that's the one that was known before, because everybody assumed that Pynchon applied to this on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a young guy; he's looking for some money to um, to so he could write. And and we, we but somebody had to. Um, but if you but Tomask, when you're in the hunting and look at the Tomask papers. Mm-hmm. Um, he looked at the whole file and the way they found people to offer this 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 grant to was to have people apply, offer they they sent out letters to writers and teachers and etc to ask to to give them names that they could write to to ask them if they wanted to do this mm-hmm. and somebody at cornell must have given them pension's name and they wrote to him and asked him to apply wow it was like seven thousand dollars and they would spend a year um with a um a, a theatrical group i think in chicago mm. cool um well in your book um a lot of the focus is on i guess what some would call the california novels at least inherent oh Vice, yeah vineland and then I'm not. Do people group Lot Forty Nine in with that? I think so. Yeah, and I would even yeah, count, Lot Forty Nine, Vineland, and I and Inherent Vice are the three. Right. I even count Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> That's though. a controversial take. There's parts set in California, and it's about just the ending, right? Well, have you read? Um, have you seen? Wait, I'm reading this at the moment. Um, it, it's Pynchon, Planetary Pynchon by No. No, that sounds cool. Uh, it's a really he's a, he's a really good critic. Mm-hmm. Um. And he argues that um, Gravity's Rainbow, Mason Dixon, Against the Day are another trilogy. 
Yeah. I could see oh. that definitely like in, in a sort of grand historical sense. But I think I think we talked about this with David Coward, but I consider Gravity's Rainbow one of the California novels because of its obsessions with at the time the twin interests of the left coast, which are the counterculture and the heavy weapons industry. To me, those yeah. are such like a California narrative, even if you're someone like or and entertainment, right? I mean, obviously I'm kind of stretching the definition a bit because I think there's, you know, well, I would put Cal- I words put crying- there. I live for crying a lot 49 in the historical novels. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Um, it's it's hard to sort of create any kind of easy delineation, but yeah. Well, because you can take the Tristero and read the history of, of, from, from 1588 to the present. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I do in a way think that pension prime interest is, is, or prime sort of, genre if you had to force him into one of the a bookstore shelf i would say historical fiction um and oh yeah but is there so i think it's a natural thing for your book and your purposes of your book which is to explore pension's biography through his works in many ways um and I, it seems to me natural to gravitate towards those california novels inherent vice lot 49 and vineland um Conversely, Gravity's Rainbow seems to offer little in the way of biographical interpretation. Um, I was wondering if you agreed with that. Um, well, in a way, it's easy. the 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 books that are 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 um set in periods of Finchin's life mm-hmm. are are kind of you're drawn to those because you can see the connections between his own life and 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 the books, and he does um. I mean, Lot Forty Nine. Um, the character goes to Cornell. Um, she grew up a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Pynchon went to Cornell and grew up a Republican. And although, um, and so so the connections are there. There's things that are Pynchon are going through, and he's writing about those periods of time uh, as well. Yeah. Um. So that's why I think I'm gravitated to, but. Gravity's Rainbow, for instance, there's that little passage where he where he describes um, Prentice's dream, which which seems to be a, a description of the neighborhood in Long Island. Right, right. Um, and there's a little song, the 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 song that um, that um, Weisenberg and Luke Luke Herman point out is a, a, a seems like an autobiographical song near the end of Gravity's Rainbow, mm-hmm. where he he he's he says maybe i should go up to up north in northern california or head back east or to hang out with my kin yeah kind of thing right. um it, it's just harder to find them yeah what's what um, was your personal experience with gravity's rainbow both when you first read it and then whether or not you read it again or consulted it at all oh me? i've read it tons of times by okay. this time yeah <laughs> i mean i read it in the summer of um after reading um lot 49 and and i spent like a month mm-hmm. and, and i i really didn't get much out of it i i spent um yeah um the first reading was similar uh i'm very slow um although i told the guy in grad school um because after reading lacan everything comes becomes a little bit easier this may play to a certain uh, cliched image of the Pinchon reader, but if you're listening to this and you think Pinchon is difficult, read Lacan or like Deleuze and Guattari, and you know Pinchon will read like a fucking Applebee's menu by comparison. <laughs> so anyway, you first read it back then and maybe didn't get so much out of it, and then what? What was? How did it progress? And, and, and then I, I reread it. Um, and uh, uh, I reread it twice before um, I read Mason and Dixon. And I've read it like three or four times since then. Yeah. Um, and I get different things each time. Some, so an aspect of your book that I found interesting. I mean, I did already know this about Kerouac, but when it's juxtaposed directly with Pynchon, it it got me thinking. So Kerouac was one of those writers that a lot of people held up as maybe one of the primary movers of, you know, the hippies. You know, his, his yeah, part he was in the a beat precursor. movement. And yeah, precursor to the hippies and on the road was almost like a not a I guess you would say Bible, but maybe there's a better word for it for for hippies and and like a Michelin guide. Or, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, a Zagat's guide <laughs> to how to be a hippie. Um, but 
Kerouac famously renounced the hippies and sort of had these conservative tendencies that came out, you know, later. And it almost spoiled the mood, I think, um, for that sort of juxtaposition between himself and the hippie movement. My experience of Pynchon feels different. Pynchon feels almost remarkably consistent in whatever politics you might read. But I think the most popular reading is vaguely leftist politics, um, at least uh, critical of the state and these big systems that impose upon the individual. Um, do you think that's an accurate statement that Pynchon has? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, through? I think he's uh, I I think his. Uh, I, I think his really big issue with it, why he wouldn't become a Kerouac kind of get, become conservative late in life is because he's against this, um, the stabilizing, once becomes something becomes set, it yeah. becomes oppressive. And even with the hippie movement, if you if I, I talk about this 1970, 1974 letter that he writes to um Schetzlein and Beale, mm -hmm. um um Schetzlein is a novelist, a friend from from Cornell who published one novel that Pynchon blurbed, and yeah. um and Beale is a science fiction writer. They were a couple. Mm -hmm. Um and he he's criticizing a row, an anti Nixon rally in nineteen seventy four, yeah. because it's it's more of a social event than a actual political. Um, yeah, he a, says it's a political. You go to meet girls or something like he that. He says he right? wants yeah. to get some neurotic pussy. Call from <laughs> yeah. the weather, right? Yeah, yeah. So so you were saying how he seems to have remained resisted this possibly popular trend of of people who were radicals in their younger artistic lives sort of falling back into reactionaryism later. Well, and if yeah, I may because... say, like, Inherent Vice was almost criticized by many people for that reason. Like, a lot of people regarded, or a lot of critics regarded Inherent Vice as almost this naive, nostalgic pin for the 60s and early 70s. And it's like, it shouldn't pinch on be old and wise enough to know that these people were just farting around smoking joints and it had no politics. That that was, I, I recall, a common critique of that book. Uh, oh, yeah. But to me, I find it nice that he reserves a kind of fondness for this scene where the sort of trend is to sort of look back at it and wag one's finger. Well, he had a he has a fondness for the what the what the the hope that the the the, the period inspired um and it, and he's right i think it inspired hope whatever the problems it was i mean i mean there's this um romantic critic he, um who you should read if you're interested into interest in romantic literature he the famous book is his book right now is brown romantics mm -hmm. but and he does he really despises the um the hypocrisy of the of the period because th there's this social positive progressiveness to it but underlying it there was this anti-progressiveness to it that people didn't realize at the time yeah. we in our intro episode we mentioned minstrel island um and i think a lot of people or a lot of our show has lacked any um investigation into his unpublished early writings um but your exploration of minstrel island and also the articles he wrote for his or pieces he wrote for his high school paper um are, are very interesting and i was wondering if you saw what you see starting in those pieces if you see any themes if you see his thematic writing being consistent all the way back to his younger years. I mean, something you mentioned in your book is love as a subversive force, which I think is certainly true of aspects of Gravity's Rainbow, specifically, at least how Roger Mexico thinks of his affair with Jessica Swan Lake. Um, do you see themes established in his high school writings and Minstrel Island that... Well, there's an interest in enclaves. Right. Can you um, explain? I, I mean, those are the two main ones. Um, like, And, and you mentioned... Um, Roger and um, Jessica, they have this little enclave where they escape to, and and that's where they can say "fuck the war" yeah. because they're they're outside and they're nominally uh, free of they're out there they're they're trapped and they're hidden in their own little enclave. Yeah. And in in the the high school writings, 
I mean, most of the most of the pieces are about an enclave. Yeah. Um. The the Hamster High is is like separated from the main mainland. Um. And and it's and it's cut off, and it's the the relationship how the people re- react to this. Yeah. Um. And Mr. Island also is about a, an, an island of sort of free living people who are basically upon, beatniks. Basically, yeah. beatniks um, were imposed upon by IBM, who comes to I guess colonize the island. In, in yeah, to take to to put, bring it back into the fold, yeah. and their resistance to it is um, sex. <laughs> yeah. I mean, gravity's uh, rainbow I mean, abounds with that enclave idea. I mean, you, you, it, the white visitation is an enclave. Roger and Jessica's hideaway zone is an enclave. Oh the yeah, casino, or Mount Goring is an enclave. When you get into the zone, there's all the little, like the villages of uh, gay concentration camp prisoners who reenact the concentration camp. The village of the Anubis is a the Anubis is an enclave. The the village of dogs that is overruled by pointsmen is an enclave. I mean, there's almost this, and, uh, and there's a. There's an article that argues that the difference between the post-Vineland work is is when Pynchon gets in the enclaves. And I'm reading this, I go, no, he was doing that when he was 16. Yeah. So what do you think the enclave represents to Pynchon? An escape. It's a place where you can hide out and be yourself. Maybe Um, for only so long, though, it seems. Well, yeah, I mean, mean, it's kind of in the Minstrel Island, it's kind of... um, it's 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 set up as a a, a place of resistance yeah. even at the end when they lose the island um there's a song um that that kirk pat sir sale kirkpatrick sale wrote yeah. and then pynchon has written his his comments on it it's a really neat thing if you get if you ever have a chance to get the document and it's in austin and austin are really really open it's not like the huntington when you go to the huntington you got to get permission and blah 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 yeah. and we, you go to austin you you show them an id they make you look at a video and then you, you they let you into their 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 stuff nice um podcast field trip to austin. yeah maybe we'll go down there we can check out the dfw archive as well and, and they have they have a they have um, a vineland um not a vine actually they do they have a vineland um down a manuscript of Vineland and a type a typescript of Vineland and a typescript of of V, um, both when, earlier versions of it. When you encounter that stuff, do you feel romantic about it? No, it's just text. Okay. You end your book with a short epilogue that culminates in the statement that Pynchon's personal silence is a life affirming force. I was wondering what that sentiment means to you. Oh well, I mean, it's the idea that, uh, and and this is, I, I think, uh, um, will bring us back to the beginning of this talk. Mm-hmm. Um, John talked about he didn't care about the bi- biographical stuff. That yeah, once you get into it, it, kind of stabilizes things. And Pynchon's being silenced and not having access to all this stuff. This and him coming out and saying, "Oh, this is what I meant." Mm-hmm. Um, it it keeps the interpretive. Um, uh, the the uh, the dialogic momentum. interpretive momentum going yeah. and, and so his silence allows us to build our own stories around um what's going on and it keeps and it's and it's alive it doesn't it doesn't get it doesn't get stable and just dead um a piece of block yeah i agree a, with a doorstop I always think about because I'm a big Dylan fan, too. And there was this really mean review of Dylan's movie, Ronaldo and Clara, I think, in the Village Voice, where the first line was the critic was like, I wish that Bob Dylan was dead so that we could perform an autopsy and pin him down and understand every little thing about him. And I mean, beyond, I think it being kind of mean to wish that someone <laughs> is dead in a review of their movie. It's like. No, that is the last thing I would want with yeah, that's the actually opposite thing. It's like want. the lepidiatrist routine where it's like you can pin them to a wall, you know. Eventually, when they pinch on passes away, I assume all the stuff come out and people can, you know, write biographies that are substantive and those will be interesting on their own merits. Uh, but I, I agree 100%. Like, I, I always think of that line from the Coen brothers, accept the mystery. Yeah, I mean, there's like, so little room for mystery in the world these days that I'm happy to have people if, who if, can't be pinned down. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about one popular theory that a lot of that I would say is the most popular theory about Pynchon's life. Um, 
which is that some at some point during his time at Boeing, maybe even before at Cornell or after, he became privy to some sort of deep state machination or some CIA thing or perhaps the MK Ultra experiments happening at Cornell, this, that, all this yes. other stuff. I mean, one detail that I think we both found interesting is the stuff about the Phoebus cartel, which on Wikipedia, it says Thomas Pynchon is credited as being the one to popularize the information about the Phoebus cartel, um, which I, I don't know if you remember or not, but that's the the conglomerate of light bulb manufacturers that were like a real cartel and maybe even some sort of organized criminal enterprise in like pre-world war ii europe yeah they managed planned obsolescence for light bulbs yeah. and in gravity's rainbow it's like who byron defies they right? send, oh they yeah point. they send an assassin after byron the bulb to un- <laughs> because to he refuses him. to to die i i mean i'm really skeptical about this stuff yeah um i basically because i didn't find any anything I, I didn't find anything, and and I there, there's one person that says Pynchon's anonymity, except he uses his name. Mm-hmm. How are you anonymous if you use your name? I, to me, right. it's one of those absence of evidence is not evidence of absence type things. Does that apply? Yeah, in um, but um, but I mean, if really the government wanted to get him, they could have got him. Sure. I I mean, he stayed with Judith Pynchon's and Judith Pynchon. Uh, um, his his um. Niece just came out with a with her own memoir mm-hmm. um la- late last year, mm-hmm. and she talked. She says Pynchon came and stayed at their house when she was a child. Yeah. Um, she didn't know he was the great author and stuff. Right. Um, and like he's been at the time, tax but returns he since the sixties. I mean, he's not that anonymous, you know. And and um, I mean, basically, if he wanted to hide out, he he would do a better job of it. Um. Yeah, I, I I mean his readers didn't know where he was. Although there's a guy um who's who who has done his best to gather all the addresses that Thomas Finchon has stayed at. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There's that part in your book where there's like he has two mailboxes in where is it California somewhere or in Seattle he had two oh, mailing Seattle. addresses. Right? Oh oh yeah. Well that was because that's in the, the Fon Gould and um and when. And when um, they told they told Candida Donadio that they were going to accept his book, she said, "Oh, write to him here." But uh, in case he's not there, here's another address. Mm-hmm. Um, probably just because he had two girlfriends. It's, I don't think it's like <laughs> um, surreptitious or something like that. Well, it might have been he moved. Right. Um, those those both addresses show up with his name in the Seattle phone book. Right. Um, and and if you ever get a copy of Fongul in the head, those Seattle theme, those Seattle phone book pages are on the on the on the in the front um cool all right well i um, think that ties it up john did you want to add anything uh no i'm good i i just think with all this i auto like you know the thing is with the idea that gravity's rainbow is exposing these secret things is like these secret things were being actually exposed concurrently with the book's publication so i think if you want to like blow the whistle on mk ultra there are people who are like literally doing that and after the watergate hearings i mean dulles and all these guys got pulled before congressional hearings for you know the whole notion of their secret government was being exposed so i think that if that is your goal is to say that these things have happened and are happening there are probably plainer ways to do it than writing a torturously complex 800 page postmodern novel well but that's just my dumb dumb Occam's razor already already writing a torturously obscure yeah but if we novel. get into that novel um then we're obsessed we have to become obsessed with it it's not like we read an article in the times that we can forget about in two days right you're right yeah <laughs> well Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, and what, once again, okay, the book is Thomas for... Pinchon, The Demon in the Tax by Albert. Oh, Bowles. yeah, I got a terrible cover at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have, it, we have it right here. I highly recommend <laughs> it. Um, it's a, it's yeah. an easy, quick read. There's lots of little nuggets that are fun um, to hear about. And I also think, you know, it, it's conceptually, academically interesting as well. And read the notes. The notes are... Yes, th- read the footnotes oh. at the back. Foster Wallace style. <laughs> That's where all the good stuff is hiding. <laughs> Well, thanks to Albert Rolls for your insights. Again, his book is called Thomas Pinchon, The Demon in the Text from 2019. The recent past. Uh, yes. Makes me feel like I'm in my early 30s again mm. instead of my late 30s. <laughs> um, Asher, you'll be in your late 30s one day, so don't laugh. No, I'm not going to make it. Uh, don't say that.
anyways, thanks for listening. And we're going to do another bonus episode where we finally answer some more listener voicemails. Yeah, man. So stay tuned to the feed. Uh, sorry we can't update every week, but this is fucking free anyway. So yeah. get what you pay for, baby. Yeah. Bye. Bye.